Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. These are the people who didn't stay up late cleaning up for Starry Night, right? Or did you just keep staying up? You're here because you just kept going. Wow. Well done. Well done. I hope you got some coffee downstairs. Uh, we are going through a sermon series in the book of 1 Peter, which is towards the end of the New Testament. And this morning we're going to do the first part of chapter 4, just the first six verses of 1 Peter 4. And so if you, if you want to turn there, it will also be on the screen, and you can follow along as we read 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. It says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards with regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is the word of God. Well, this letter to young churches in Asia Minor is about applying the truth of the gospel to our lives. And especially what it means to grow in hope and holiness when we face, in this particular passage and several of the others in 1 Peter, when we face persecution for Christian faith. Uh, you might notice this in the span of these six short verses that Peter mentions several challenging realities. He mentions sin, suffering, and judgment. And about how all these things relate here and now in our lives. And Peter seems to say this. Did you notice? He says, uh, there's really only two ways to live in this life. One, either doing the will of God, or two, doing what pagans do. Do you see that, verse 2 and 3? Uh, he says, as a result of looking to Christ who, and, and being willing to suffer for sin, we do not live the rest of our lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. There's two ways to live. The will of God, or what our society expects. We face this choice of either taking the path of least resistance, of going along with the values and norms and practices that our society expects and accepts, or we take the path of obeying God. Even if, as this passage gets at and others in First Peter, we are ostracized, judged, criticized, and we're insulted for doing so. In essence, friends, if you're a Christian, you have to decide if you will meet God's expectations or society's. Two ways to live. Will you meet God ex God's expectations or will you meet society's? And the thing is, the more hostile 
your culture is to the gospel, the more distinct and countercultural your lifestyle decisions become. The more your society dislikes Christianity, the more your life will look distinct from others around you. And, but also, notice this. These Christians are not just goody-two-shoes. They're not just people who've only done nice things. Peter seems to assume, and apparently knows, as maybe someone who has pastored them, he knows that they have spent plenty of time in their lives doing the very things he now says are counter to your life. Did you see that? He says, For you have, verse 3, you have spent enough time in the past doing what all the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery or sensuality, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. You have spent enough time doing these things, he says. He's saying these things aren't foreign to you as if they were unknown things out there. You've just as much been a part of your society as anybody else. But now, knowing Jesus, you are different. So on the other hand, even though they've spent plenty of time participating in all the same things their society expected and accepts, he now says, on the other hand, I assume that you are now living your life that is changed by knowing Jesus, that you are being even potentially abused by your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who don't believe as you do. And they are doing this. They may reject you or criticize or ostracize or insult you because you aren't participating in the old ways of using sex, food, drink, and worship the, the orientation of your life, the way that you used to. Your life looks really different now. And so he's saying, Christians, you may be struggling because you just don't fit into your society anymore. Your way of life is different. To the world, this new way of living, this new way of thinking about human desires, about things like sex or food or alcohol or worship, seems crazy. In fact, people might think you're just downright bizarre. They're shocked, he says, Verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Do you have any friends or family or neighbors or coworkers who are surprised at how you live as a Christian? They're shocked that you don't do what they do anymore, and some are even offended. They're offended that you won't participate in the things that are acceptable to our culture. And yet, the message here is, everyone will think you are strange and potentially treat you badly because of it. Also, don't be bothered by this, is what Peter's getting at. Uh, Don't be bothered by this. Don't be bothered even that others might cause you to suffer because of your faith. And the question is, and it's proposed and answered here, how? How can I live that way? Our whole world, our whole lives are built on how people treat us, is it not? When someone we love or even someone we even just know as an acquaintance insults us or criticizes us, it can make or break our day. How can I not be bothered by the abuse that people heap on me, especially maybe for being a Christian, and instead live for God's will? How do I do that when I am criticized or condemned or I'm rejected or feel ostracized and left out? for living like Jesus? How do I do the will of God in a society that disapproves of this way of life, the Christian way of life? How do we respond then, essentially, to suffering in a godly way, living for God over society? How? How do we do it? Well, the answer is found in verse 1. Therefore, 
Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. That's the answer. That's how Peter proposes that we get through this, that we live through this together in our society. Because of what Jesus did, you do likewise. And the verse 1 is the key to the whole rest of this passage because it tells you right at the beginning of verse 2, as a result of this, no one lives according to the earthly lives anymore. No one, lives, no one who's a Christian lives according to human desire. So he says, this is the reason, and as a result, all these other things happen. You have changed your way of life as a result of what is said in verse 1. And so here's where we're going. Christians, you have to decide if you will meet God's expectations or societies. Uh, and deciding to live the rest of your life for God's will results in giving up sin and arming yourselves with the same attitude, it says, or resolve, the same resolve that Jesus had. Do you want to know what it's going to take to live in this society for Christ? It's going to take becoming like him, which is to cease from sin or kill sin like Jesus did on the cross and to arm yourselves with the same resolve that he had to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. That's what we're getting at. So two questions to try to explore this. How do we get at this? Well, what exactly are society's expectations for life, and how are they different than God's will, and how do we live for God's will in our society? So what are these expectations, and then how do we live for God's will? First, what are society's expectations? You might, you might have noticed this. Peter gives a clear list of things that he calls evil desires that describe what most people groups choose to do with their time. So in verse 3, when it says the word pagans, or maybe your Bible says Gentiles, pagans or Gentiles, this is actually just a very generic word that means peoples, meaning like all peoples, all ethnic groups, all nations. It can even be used to be translated as nations. And what he's saying is all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities, even though we have many cultural differences, uh, we all share in a lot of the same human desires. We have something in common because of our common humanity, and the way that many people in society choose to live is this, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and detestable idolatry, verse 3. You can see these things, he's saying, in every single society, and it seems then that ancient people and modern people aren't so different. 1 Peter 4, 2-4, divides the Christian life into two segments. The life lived like a pagan before you knew Christ, and then the life you live after coming to know Christ. And it may sound ridiculous, especially if some of you who grew up in uh, the church, and you grew up in some great homes, and you have excellent families, it may seem really odd to say, you used to live like a wild pagan makes no sense. No, I didn't. I didn't live like a wild pagan. When did I participate in some of these things? And the good news is that maybe by God's grace, you actually were a part of a family that got rid of a bunch of those things a long time ago. And so you've been raised in a different way. And that's just God's grace to you that you had, if you had excellent parents, a great Christian community, you've been fortunate enough to be spared some of those things. But the point of all of this, Peter is saying, is that the norms of society are based on internal human desires, which means you are also a participant still, because the norms of society are rooted in what he says are human desires. And so even if you are a good church person, you have these desires, and all of these desires might be summed up in this way. They're all about self-gratification. And so if you've ever had any desire to be gratified for yourself, apart from anyone else, or maybe even taking from someone else in some way to do that, 
you're a participant. Even if you haven't participated fully to the, to the wild living extent that Peter describes of pagan peoples. The best thing about it is if you're part of a good church community, you're, bar, you're part of a, a life that is rooted in Christ, then it's just very possible that what God has been doing is simply teaching you new ways to handle these desires. That's the difference. It's not that all people, including, including Christians, don't have these desires. It's that they are handled differently. Let me describe these to you. What are these desires? So the first five items in the list that Peter gives involve... Uh, in verse 3, essentially involve unrestrained desire for sex, food, or drink. The last one, the one that talks about uh, detestable idolatry, is referring more to cruel, violent, promiscuous, immodest actions that were related to cult worship in a pagan society. But the first, let's summarize a couple of these. Debauchery, or another word for that would be sensuality. What is that? It's a behavior that lacks moral constraint, but it's particularly uh, around sex and violence. So the focus of the word is often around the pursuit of physical and maybe especially sexual pleasure or allure. So essentially, it's actually, though, a focus on the body. Much of sensuality is a focus on the body. So we can say that it goes all the way down to the roots of being attractive or seeking to become attractive in order to get attention from others, or, which potentially leads down the road towards doing things with others. But even if we don't go that far, it's rooted in the body. As Rob and Leah mentioned a couple weeks ago when they talk about marriage up here, we talked in 1 Peter 3 about marriage. They said, attractiveness isn't bad. No one in the Bible is condemning attractiveness. And that's true. What we're talking about here is the use of attractiveness, the use of sensuality in order to get for yourself what you want, some kind of pleasure. Uh, Maybe it's simply how we employ our body or our actions so that we can get pleasure from somebody else. Whether it's just trying to get them to pay a little bit more attention to us so that we can have their attention, we can hold their eyes, their gaze, their, their minds, or whether it's we go all the way towards actually seducing someone in any way, whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other, that's sensuality. The fact that gyms are filled with people who aren't really just trying to be healthy, but are trying to sculpt their bodies into something particular, that's sensuality. And we all share these desires. We, in one sense, want our bodies to win us acceptance, attention, and pleasure. That's sensuality. And then Peter talks about lust. And if, if uh, sensuality is rooted in the use of the body, lust is about the use of the mind. And in our minds, in our imaginations, we can cultivate strong sexual desires or images or fantasies, right? But lust is more than just sexual in nature. For our minds also have this huge appetite for power, for control, for wealth or status or possessions. So we can lust after intelligence. To be more intelligent than the next person is a lust. Or we can lust after charm, to be smarter or more put together than the next person. And so when we dream about how to be gratified, how to be satisfied, uh, if we could just get someone else to, to give us something that we want, or if we could just achieve the salary or the home or the possessions that we dream up are so necessary to our happiness, that's lust. And it's not that dreaming is bad. We're not saying never dream, never use your imagination. 
Not at all. The Bible is actually very for us being creative and using our imagination. It's just with sin, the problem is that we use our imaginations mostly to dream up self-centered scenarios. You ever, you ever think about this? You, know, you think, when you daydream, do you dream all the time about how you can just do good to other people? That would be called having a holy imagination. I dream of what I can do for the sake of others. No, most of us sit there dreaming about what I can get, what I can take, what I can gain. Can you imagine if we were filled with this, if all of us just dreamed this week only of how we could love, serve, and give to others? That would be the opposite of lust. That's what Peter's talking about. This is the tendency, the impulsive tendency of our own internal desires and of our society is to fix our minds on something in the world and we put an inordinate, excessive craving on it. And we just seek after that thing to have that thing. That's lust. And then the third thing, I'll summarize the other three together because I think they get at the same thing. Drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. Whereas sensuality is focused on the body and lust is focused on the mind, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties describe our actions. They're describing the actions that we take. Uh, They refer to excessive acts of eating, drinking, or sex. And in the ancient pagan world that Peter's writing into, the religious cult worship actually required participants to do these things, uh, and they would have even been practiced publicly at uh, festivals like Dionysus or Saturnalia. And... Kind of like Lollapalooza, maybe, <laughs> except this was a little more gratuitous. Uh, I was up in Chicago at Lollapalooza, and yes, they were truly like nearly naked people just running the streets. It was kind of like this, okay? So there are, using these things though, drunkenness or orgies or drinking parties, you say, okay, we're on a college campus. I have seen drunkenness. I may have participated. We are on a college campus. There are drinking parties. Yes. But orgies, come on. Is that really in our society? And I, I'm, I'm not going to say either way uh, whether there are or aren't, but I would not put it past us. But even more, let's go this way. Since that seems less of an acceptable thing, there's no, no openly public cults that I know of who are practicing those kind of things. The thing is, isn't the mindset of an orgy actually very with us? And the mindset is, I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, however often I want. Is that really so far off from our society? Isn't, getting, isn't our society often saying that? Get as much sex as you want with whoever you want. Isn't the tendency of our culture to say, you should sleep with as many people as you'd like and whoever you'd like to. In fact, it's almost weird if you haven't slept with a few people at least. That's what Peter is saying. Aren't these things all over? All over all human societies and cultures? And here's the point. All these ways of thinking and being and behaving are eventually self-destructive. They are eventually self-destructive. And why is that? Peter's saying they are counter to God's will. They violate God's will. They are harmful to yourself and to others. And essentially then the pursuit of self-gratification now leads to self-destruction later, sometimes sooner rather than later. And in the culture Peter and this young church, these young churches that he's writing to are in, he's saying, actually, non-Christians would persecute Christians because they didn't participate in these things. And it's not because the non-Christians viewed uh, the Christian God as a false God. It's actually because people worshiping this Christian God changed their behaviors so much that many of the Greco-Roman peoples were offended. Why don't you participate with me in these things? 
And so most of the Christians started to develop new views around their society's entertainment, society's morals, and society's customs. And maybe we need to as well, that Christians often started to abstain from their society's, society's entertainment. Back in the Roman world, much of the entertainment wasn't on Netflix, it was live. And Roman theater was wildly promiscuous. I mean, it was sexual on stage, live. And people went to Roman gladiatorial fights where people were ripped to shreds by lions or pummeled to death. Uh, with swords and spears and things. And so the Christians stopped participating in those because of these gratuitous nature of those things. And we might think, well, we don't have that, but we do. We can watch it all the time. What is your theology of entertainment? What do you do? Do you consume things just because it's there? Or do you choose not to because of your relationship with Christ? And how do you decide what things to consume and not consume in your entertainment? That's the question that many of these Christians would have had. And they were starting to work towards a different way. They didn't fully participate in the way that everyone else treated entertainment. Or their morals, their society's morals, um, they would start to abstain then from having an indulgent temper, just wild outbursts or acceptable fights in the streets or sex outside of marriage or drinking parties. They said, no, we won't indulge in those things anymore. Our, our society's morals say these things are good. And we are saying, no, we will not participate anymore. How, uh, and, and our culture is often built on a similar morality. It's built on the morality of putting yourself first. How dare anyone tell you that you should refrain from indulging whatever you want? You get yours and don't let anyone stop you. Chase your dreams, get what you want. But you and I, because of these things, are often far more in danger of indulging ourselves than not. And so the Christians in this day and in ours have to consider, how do I think through my culture's morality? And what about our society's customs? You know, back then, they would burn incense to the emperor. There's a civic gesture of gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the empire. So they would participate in these idolatrous worship ceremonies because they believed it helped everybody. And we may say, well, that is very far from us. But in our uh, globalized, pluralistic world, uh, we actually have a very similar reality in that everything spiritual seems acceptable except the exclusive claims of the gospel. So do whatever you'd like. Worship whatever you'd like. Indoctrinate yourself into all sorts of spiritualities. Choose to worship how you want to worship. But this exclusive thing, just to only worship Jesus, isn't that arrogant? Society's customs say, you do you. Whatever is, is right for you is what's true. And what the gospel says is, whatever is true is what's right, and what's true is Jesus alone is God. So that pits people against one another in a sense. It says, here's Christians and here's society. We don't agree on our customs. Here's what happens if you decide to live for God's will rather than society's. Essentially what we're saying is, it costs you. It costs you something. You will never feel quite at home in your society again if you follow Jesus. You'll always feel a bit like an exile or a foreigner. And it's because you're not home. You're not fully home. Your hope and joy are now in the kingdom of God. Rather than in these finding fulfillment for these human desires is what Peter is saying. So the question is, are we willing to earn a bad reputation like the early Christians in the Roman Empire? who were looked down upon because of their views of life having been changed. 
Here, here's what we're saying. Why do we do? Why do we desire these things in the first place? Why do people get drunk? Isn't it just, man, I just got to let it all go, and, and I got to get rid of my stress. It's, that's really, that, that answer is comfort. I need to be comforted. I have a difficult thing in my life right now. I drink so that I can be comforted. Or why do people sleep around without a marriage commitment to one another? Isn't it to feel loved and accepted? Why do we sculpt our bodies in the gym or spend mental capacity on lust? Isn't it because something about that means that maybe someone will like us or will accept us for how we look or how strong we are or because our minds can be... uh, We can grow our minds to be greater than others. We can have more charm. In our lust, maybe, we are hoping that others will want us. So all these things come down to this. I am someone who seeks comfort and acceptance everywhere I go. And Peter is saying, you have another way now to find those things. How do you then live for God's will? How do you live for God's will? If we are no longer conforming to our society in regard to how we use our bodies, our minds, and our actions, how do we do that? How do we live in this society? Live for God's will. And the answer was, verse 1, arm yourselves. And we'll get into that. But the first thing I want you to notice about this thought, how do we live for God's will in our society, is that this is not motivated by rules. Now, everything I just told you is very common Uh, for what Christians might understand. We don't participate in many of those things. But did you notice I didn't list any rules? There are rules about these things in the Bible. There are commands not to do them. But that's actually not what Peter is saying here. Because for some of us, we might think, ah, here we go. We have another Christian message about don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do. That was how they put it in another, you know, generation. That's how they used to say it. My grandparents would say that, you know. Don't drink, smoke, or chew. Chew tobacco is what they're getting at. Or hang out with girls that do. And you're like, okay, thanks, Grandma. Um, <laughs> this is not another sermon about the rules. We're not talking about the rules, about how we should not drink alcohol or not have premarital sex. Those things are true. But there are places in the Bible that, that, that clearly tell us not to do those things. But I'd like to point something out to you about this passage And I love it because it challenges our other innate tendency, which our human desire is to just get enough rules and live by them so we can prove that we're fine. But notice something about verse 3, verse 2 and 3. It says, as a result, right, verse 2, as a result of living God's truth, we no longer participate in dysfunctional uses and abuses of sex, food, alcohol, and worship. The command given is not, hey, don't have sex. Hey, don't get drunk. Stop worshiping created things instead of the creator, although all those things are true. Instead, the one command in this passage is arm yourselves with the same resolve as Christ. The thing that you are to do is to arm yourself with the same resolve, the same thinking that Jesus had in his life. And here's why we have to notice that. Look, you will never live God's will unless you see that God doesn't give us laws that prohibit certain thoughts and actions simply because they're wrong. He gives us laws because he loves us. That's a major difference. Did you see the reason given for why our lives will result in no longer participating in corrupted patterns of life? What's the reason? The reason is Jesus himself. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, 
Therefore, you arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. The reason given is Jesus suffered for you. The reason is not stop doing bad things, so arm yourselves like Jesus did to not do bad things. That's not what it says. Stop doing bad things because God says so. Stop doing bad things because they're wrong. You better stop. He says, stop it. Just do better. That is not the gospel. You will not grow by trying to simply slap on a few rules and do better. Because haven't you tried to do better? And isn't it pretty hard? The reason is not just do better. What did Jesus do? Why is the reason Jesus? It's because Jesus saved us by suffering for us. That's the reason we're given. How do you arm yourselves? How do you take on all the expectations that surround you in society? How do you do it? You arm yourselves with the same resolve and thinking that Jesus had, and his thinking was, I would rather suffer for sin than participate in it. I would rather suffer for sin than participate in it. And God's love for us is, the, is evidenced through this salvation. God himself was willing to suffer on your behalf so that you would not be left in your sin created by our own corrupted human desires. He never says, don't do bad stuff because I said so. The reason he gives is, isn't obey because I said so. The reason is obey because I am so. I am so full of love and grace for you that it was my joy to save you even though it cost me suffering. I'd rather suffer than leave you in your sin. This is not a message that just says, follow the rules, do better. It's you didn't follow the rules and couldn't do better and I still came for you. I would even suffer for you. God's love for us is evidenced through that kind of salvation. And this is all over the Bible. The entire Bible, whenever you read any commands or laws in all of Scripture, you always have to go find first that they are rooted in God's gracious salvation and grace, His love for you. Even the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal, don't murder, don't lie. Well, aren't those just straight-up rules? Yes, but do you know how the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Therefore, don't steal. Therefore, don't murder. Did you see the first thing isn't a command? The first thing is, I saved you from slavery and the worst kind of life. Therefore, to live this new kind of life I give you, don't do these things. Don't participate in those old things. I've saved you from them. Everything God does is rooted not in, hey, stop it, but is rooted in, hey, I love you. I am coming for you. This is how you change. This is how you become different. I was taught when I first started studying the Bible for myself in college and really learned how to do that. A pastor taught me that you should always ask, and there's a lot of them in the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore therefore? It's very helpful. It's really easy to remember. What's the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? I remember first learning to ask that question when I was studying Ephesians, another New Testament book in the Bible. And the whole hinge point of Ephesians is the word therefore. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out these incredible doctrines that tell you who are you and what is the church and why are we here and what is everything about. And then he says, therefore, since God has saved you, 
here's how you ought to live. Live a life worthy of what you've received, is what he says. So then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about what God calls us to live because of what's true, because of what's in front of the therefore. And so I'm spending time on this saying, look, it goes like this. Here's what's true, therefore, here's what's to do. That's that's my summary statement of that. Here's what's true, therefore, here's what's to do. And I'm spending time on that because I think that many of us, even even if you're already a Christian, you think that God is this cosmic killjoy and Christianity is super gloomy. And God just shoves himself into our lives and says, I want to take away all the joy that could possibly be found around food or sex, right? God just wants to strip us of things that could be wonderful. And that if you are a Christian and you know that those things out of a wrong, in a wrong context are wrong, then you should just always and perpetually feel guilty about sex or alcohol or dancing. All these things are bad. They can contain no good whatsoever. And so you should just stop doing these things and you should never feel good about yourself ever again. And that's Christianity. Just stop being bad so that you can be good. Wrong. That is not Christianity. Here's the problem with this way of thinking. There is some truth in it, in that stopping those things really is good. But God in the Bible only gives you practical expectations, such as laws or commands, that are because they are based on ultimate truth. The Bible never tells you to do something so you simply won't be bad anymore. God doesn't give you busy work. The truth of God isn't based on negatives, but positives. The Bible says God is love. God is just. God is glorious. God is truth. God is light. God is with us. God is for you. God is faithful. God is kind. God is strong. God is able. And God is good. The Bible is built on positives, not negatives. It's built on the positive realities of who God is. The only reason God gives for not doing something is because something else is ultimately true and better. That is the only reason. God's reason for for us to not sin is because he loves us, not simply because sin is bad. Here's what we're getting at. I'm pretty sure I got this from Tim Keller, so credit to him if I did. When God tells you, don't lie, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't spend time or money just on yourself for your own selfish gain, he is only telling you that because if you break the rule, you will break yourself. If you break the rule, you will break yourself. Here's an example. Little children, why do we tell them not to put forks in outlets? Because forks are metal and they conduct electricity and bodies don't handle electricity well. So when you say, don't do that, son, or don't do that, daughter, when your parents said, please don't do that, it's not simply because they're like, hey, stop it, just because. No, the rule is based on an ultimate truth, and the truth is you get electrocuted, you can die. The rules aren't arbitrary. The rules are based on truth. And so if you break a rule that is based on truth, then the rule, or rather the truth, will ultimately break you. The truth is electricity kills. You want to play with it? You might die. Rules that are arbitrary are busy work, but God doesn't give busy work. God doesn't give false rules. He gives rules that are based on ultimate truth. And 1 Peter 4 is getting at Christians must decide if you will meet God's expectations or societies, and there's only two ways to live, and one of those ways breaks you. The other one gives you a glorious life. 
Look, if we know the truth that Peter's talking about, that Christ suffered for us in his earthly life, why would we give the rest of our earthly lives in a way opposite to what he gave us by suffering on our behalf? Should we return to doing things that put Jesus on the cross in the first place? Haven't we spent, Peter says, enough time doing that? Haven't we spent enough time living according to human desires and human standards of chasing comfort and pleasure and acceptance but ultimately getting nowhere good? Haven't we spent enough time? Here's the amazing thing about what Jesus did. When it says in verse 1 that Christ suffered for you, it's saying that even though it was humanity who broke God's rules and therefore broke the truth, it was Jesus who was broken instead of you. When we break God's rules, we break the truth that stands behind those rules, and therefore it breaks us, except that instead, Jesus let his life be broken instead of ours. This is why he came and suffered. This is why he came to die. Peter is telling us about how Jesus suffered once for all for sin so that you and I wouldn't. That's why Jesus came. What we're saying is, guys... When you're a believer in the gospel, when you follow Jesus, you have a revolutionized life. This is not saying, look, just get a little bit more prayer, a little less cursing, a few less drinks, and a few more worship services. No. Don't just add a few new rules to your life. This is an entirely different new kind of life that is saved from sin. And then as verse 1 says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So what Peter is saying is when you look at Jesus and you see that he was willing to suffer for our sin and die to free us from sin, then when you say, I would rather suffer than sin, you're saying, I'm actually done with that sin. It's over to me. I'm done with it. Because think about it. You choose one or the other. You either either, uh, suffer for something in a way by withholding yourself from it. No, I will not participate in that old drinking party habit I used to have. Well, then what you've shown is I've stopped sinning in that way. Every time I don't do it, I've ceased from sinning. That's what he says. And so here's what Peter's trying to build in us. Rather than lusting for one another, we have sincere brotherly love, it says in chapter 1. Treating each other like brothers and sisters rather than like sex objects. Rather than hours spent in drunken stupor, we are alert and aware of all the ways we could do good and benefit one another. We see that our time is not just our own, it's God's. And the rest of the time we have is to be, he says, self-controlled and sober-minded in verse 7. Not self-gratifying and drunken-minded. Not lust-minded. The thing that changed in these early Christian communities, why their neighbors heaped abuse on them and criticized or rejected them was because love had replaced lust. And that seemed wrong to society. Look, some of us might say, look, I, uh, I have lust for drink or sex. I have lust for more learning and more honor and more money and more status and more power and more superiority, more privilege. And these are all the results of turning our backs on God. It's a lust for self-gain. And it will only lead to pain and heartbreak and corruption. It doesn't uplift. It doesn't ennoble humanity. It doesn't honor one another. We get exhausted lusting after these human desires, living for ourselves. But people who know this begin to live a different sort of life. 
It's a life that looks like Jesus' life. See, Jesus didn't live to satisfy his own lusts or desires or passions. He lived all of his time in his life to do the will of God. The Gospels, we have quotes of Jesus saying, I have come to do the will of my Father who sent me. And then he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I would rather suffer even though I don't want to in order to free people from sin than to leave them in their sins so that I don't have to suffer. And so instead, he went to the cross. He suffered for our sins, though he didn't do a single one of them. We can be done with sin because Jesus finished it on the cross. He said, we're done. I am done with sin too. I have nailed it to the cross. The new life that Jesus gives you is one that is done with sin. So to finish this up, we have to go back to that phrase, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. It's an attitude or a thought. How do you arm yourself with this? Here's the thing about how a lot of us treat our Christianity. We just state the facts. Jesus loves and accepts me. That's true. That is a fact that the gospel gives to us. Jesus loves and accepts me and accepts me. But you have to arm yourself with it. Essentially, for you, the gospel is weaponized, but not in a way against other people, but against sin, against all the false things of the world. So think about this. If you are a captain on the Navy and you are on a cruise ship uh, or a destroyer, and you have all these weapons and an enemy is saying, I'm going to come and attack you. And you say, I have weapons. They're going to be like, okay, great. But then they're like, we're going to shoot a missile at you. And you're like, I have missiles. Well, it does nothing. Your ship's going to blow up. But if you arm the weapon and you actually use it, then it can do something. No one cares about the facts that you have weapons if you don't use them. You will be destroyed despite the fact that you are driving a destroyer. You will be destroyed. The thing that happens is Christianity isn't just a bunch of nice facts. You have to be armed with it. It has to become real and active in your life. It has to become the core thought. So, for example, if you believe that Jesus loves and accepts you, but you're not armed with this truth, wielding it in your life and practice, then whenever you face criticism and rejection, you lash out or you get terribly depressed. Because you may believe that God loves and accepts you, but you aren't armed with it because if you were, you would respond differently. You would begin to be able to respond differently. So when someone attacks you, you could even respond peacefully. You could feel sad, but you wouldn't turn your sadness into anger that tears somebody else down because they criticized or insulted you. That's becoming armed with the gospel, armed with the same thinking that Jesus had, who went to the cross and died and didn't attack people when he had all the power of God to destroy everyone, and yet he refused. You may know that God is powerful and wise, but if you're eaten up constantly with worry, you aren't armed with the gospel as a weapon. Look, psychologists have known for a long time that people respond to events not just by stating the facts, but how they interpret them. And so the way we begin to interpret the things that happen to us becomes different when we're armed with the gospel. God accepts me and loves me in Christ, and that changes how I approach this person. It changes how I approach this circumstance. These things can no longer destroy me. If every day I give thought towards magnifying this truth of God in my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I am beginning to read my life through a lens that automatically begins to change me. You have to be armed 
with Christ's suffering. So the more that you look at it and see what Jesus has given up for you, not gratifying himself, but giving himself, the more you will be changed. Look, there are many years of our lives that you and I wish we could erase, where painful memories or awful things are things we did or things that happened to us. And some of these things haunt us. And what Peter is saying is, good news, there's no more time for that. There's so much to do in the Christian life. It's better than you ever, than whatever used to do, what you used to do or what used to happen to you. That's not saying don't seek counseling. That's not saying don't go get help and learn to work out the struggles of life. That's saying, but those things, let's begin to put them in the past because you have a present and a future that are fully God's. You have a new life, and there's no turning back from that. The old way is empty, and isn't this great news? Look, you could have spent significant portions of your life abusing food, abusing sex, abusing relationships, abusing people, running them over, or being too afraid to ever engage with them. And Peter's saying, no, we still live in our society, even though some things in our society will come against us. We may have spent hours and hours of superficial performance just trying to get other people to accept and to like us, to be made comfortable or to feel accommodated. And Peter's saying there's a new and better way. So that thing in us that says you must achieve more, you must gain more, you must be accepted and approved of in order to be, have a good life, you can now say, no, I feel far more fulfilled than I ever imagined I could. On the cross, Jesus said, all of this is finished. The feeling that you're never enough or will never have enough, you will have human desires overboard all the time. I have finished it. Sin will push you to keep getting more and more of those things, but I have pushed myself to suffer on the cross so that you could be free from this. Essentially, Peter's saying, when you're a Christian, there's no more FOMO. There's no more fear of missing out on what society says you must do with your body, with your imagination, or with your behaviors. Instead, it's JOMO, the joy of missing out. (laughs) The joy of missing out. I am glad to miss out on all those things because I am armed with the same resolve that Jesus had to give us the greatest good so that he could bring us back to God and give us a new way of life. How great a day